0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxess. I'd like to welcome you to the Crosswinds uh, Spirit Lake campus. It's good to have you. If you're a dad, uh, happy Father's Day. So, yeah, I didn't have... Yeah, happy Father's Day. Yeah, so... uh... I hope you get a chance to be lionized by your children a little bit today. That's good. And if you're a visitor, I really hope you feel welcome in the Crosswinds Church family this morning. And that, one of the reasons for that is we have a special emphasis this summer on just trying to be a welcoming church family. In fact, you'll see that in your uh, bulletin. We have a card that says, don't just attend church, be the church. And that's sort of our theme for the summer. You know, we don't always want to be people who just come in the door and leave the door. We've attended church. But we want to be the church. Because as we've been studying through the book of 1 Timothy, uh, Paul has been talking about how the church is actually a family. You should walk in the door and feel like it's a place where you belong, and it's a place where people genuinely care about you, and they genuinely love you, and you enjoy being with your family. So we hope that is what you experience when you're here at Crosswinds. Also, on the back of that card, you'll see that we had 10 action steps that, as a church family, we are going to try and focus on this summer. And that second action step that we're going to just briefly review with you is this. It's go out of your way to meet somebody new. So after church today, I'd encourage you, go out of your way to meet somebody new and develop a genuine friendship with them. And today, Father's Day, is a great day to do that. Well, this morning we're going to continue in our study of 1 Timothy, but before we put our finger in the text, you just need to know that we're getting really close to the end of 1 Timothy, and some of you are wondering, well, what comes next? Well, here's our plan for the summer. When we finished 1 Timothy, we are going to do the book of Ruth. It's a simple four-chapter book in the Old Testament, so if any of you like love stories, that's an Old Testament love story, but Jesus permeates throughout the whole thing, so I look forward to that. After we finish Ruth, we're going to do a series called Afterlife. And In Afterlife, we're going to look what the Bible says about what happens after death. We'll look at what the Bible says about heaven, what the Bible says about hell, what the Bible says about the new creation and our resurrection bodies, and all kinds of good things to help uh, unravel what is oftentimes considered a sort of mysterious thing. You know, what happens after we die? And we just put our finger in the text and learn right from it. Uh, currently, the plans are in the fall that we would pick up with 2 Timothy, but I'm not going to give you 100% commitment on that one yet. We're still open to some deliberation, Pastor Jordan and I, as we're working on that. So today, we're back in 1 Timothy. Let me just tell you a little bit what we're talking about. We're going to be talking about a very pressing topic for each one of us, and it's the topic of money, the topic of possessions and contentment with what we have. Now, they often say, farmers are the ones who struggle with this because farmers always want more fields and bigger tractors, right? Always a bigger tractor. They always make a bigger tractor. So we're going to find a way to buy it. But the truth is, it's not just farmers who can sometimes struggle with contentment and wanting more, but it's each one of us. Doesn't each one of us want what is new? want what is bigger, want what is shinier, all the time. We all struggle with contentment. And Paul is going to talk to us about the importance of seeking contentment and finding contentment as Christians in our life. Because if we uh, give ourselves into this constant desire for what is bigger and better and more, we give ourselves into this desire for money, it could very quickly send you on a one-way trip to hell. Now, I know those are strong words, but the honest truth is that the disease of greed, of covetousness, is a very deadly and lethal disease that we'll have to deal with this morning. Now, before we actually start talking about money and covetousness, as we put our finger in the text, we're going to see that Paul is going to be talking about false teachers, You're going to say, why don't we want to start with false teachers? Well, that's where the text begins. But there is a big connection between false teaching and greed. We're going to see that actually it is greed that motivates heresy, that motivates false teaching. So our flow this morning is going to be we're going to talk about false worship, and then we're going to talk about our wallets, from some worship to wallets. So here we go. Let's uh, pull out your outlines if you want to follow along. And the first thing we're going to see is this. The secret to a godly life is always and only found in Jesus. Godly life is always and only found in Jesus. And as we look in here, I'm not even going to give you the complete sentence. We're just going to look at the very beginning of what Paul says. He says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine, that is something that's not the teaching about Jesus Christ, that the apostles have taught, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, and then he will continue on. Let me just begin with this first thought here. Paul has spent a lot of time in this book of 1 Timothy talking about false teachers. Apparently this is a serious problem in the city of Ephesus. He talked about them in chapter 1 talked about them in chapter 4, and here he is talking about them in chapter 6. And he's using very, very strong language. Anyone who is not teaching the truth of what Jesus Christ says and what the apostles have written is not to be tolerated under any circumstances in the church body. He is very concerned with a dishonest representation of Jesus and the message of Jesus Christ. And why is he so concerned? Because dishonesty about what Jesus said and did will lead you on a one-way trip to hell. It is only the honest truth about Jesus Christ that can save you. You can't twist it or change it or bend it. Now, those are strong words, but Paul is equally strong when he talks about this with the Galatians, for instance. And I didn't put this in your notes, but I'm just going to go ahead and take a moment to read it for you. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. He says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a... Different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you, and notice this, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Not totally ruin it, they want to distort it. Then he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Now, the word accursed doesn't grab you that much. Um, some translations will say, let him be anathema. The vernacular isn't, let him go straight to hell. That's literally what Paul says. If anyone is distorting the truth of Christ, let him go to hell. The truth about Jesus Christ must be the absolute no-spin zone. Now here is what we learned in the very beginning here. He says, anyone does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word sound here can also be translated healthy. So... Only the actual words of Jesus Christ, not the distorted words of Jesus Christ, the truth about Jesus Christ lead to spiritual health and eternal life. If you distort what is the true message of Jesus Christ, it is guaranteed to lead to spiritual sickness and ultimately to spiritual death. And not only are the the words about Jesus Christ healthy, but he says, it's a teaching that accords with godliness. In other words, it is only the truth about Jesus that will lead to and result in a godly life and a change in your life. Now, let me just put it to you this way. If you want to be a godly man, if you want to be a godly woman, the only way that is found is that you would keep your finger in this text. That you would read it. I really deeply encourage you to keep your finger in the text every day. Read a chapter of the Bible and think about it and meditate on it. Come to church on the weekends where we study this Word and hear the Word of God preached. We don't twist it. We don't change it. We don't make it what we want to hear. We just listen to what God says to us through this. And that is the pathway to spiritual health, and it is the pathway to godliness in your life, that God will change you and make you into a new person through His Word. This is why we keep our finger in the text. Now, let me just ask you this. Just be honest, little audience analysis. Has anybody gone through times in their life where you've drifted away from attending church and drifted away from keeping your finger in this text on a daily basis? And have you found that your life has become more ungodly? Have you found that those sinful vices in your life began to take stronger and deeper hold as you walked away from God and His Word and His people? Anybody else found that? Yes. Yes. It's this Word that is the source of our life with God and our vitality and godliness in Him. So we keep our finger in this text as a church, and I implore you and beg you on your own, open this book on a daily basis it is the source of godliness. Now, what about these false teachers who have begun to distort what Jesus has said and not fairly represent what the apostles has written down, Why do they do that? And what is the result of what they have done when they do that? That's where the sentence continues. And the the point is this. People leave Jesus because of arrogance and ignorance. Arrogance and ignorance. And he talks about these false teachers. He is puffed up with conceit. And he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy dissension slander evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of truth imagining that godliness is a means to gain he says people who decide to walk away from the truth about Jesus Christ and walk away about what the apostles have written, the reason they do it is because they're puffed up. They are incredibly arrogant. They are incredibly prideful. They are full of hot air. Think about this. Do you think the way Christianity started was some of the apostles were like playing a game of cards one night and they got bored And they're like, I'm done with fishing. Let's start a new religion. That's not the way it began. I mean, Jesus Christ comes. He comes as God in the flesh. And uh, he makes incredible claims during his ministry that he is God, but he doesn't leave those unbacked up. First thing he does, well, by the way, is he chooses the apostles. They didn't choose him. He chose them. And then he starts healing people. And and the the miracles that are in the the New Testament are not like all of the miracles Jesus did. The impression you get, and this is maybe a little bit of an overstatement, so go easy on me on this, but it's almost like he's doing miracles every day, all the time, for like three years, healing people constantly, everywhere. And the apostles see this, and Jesus claims to be God, and then he does things that only God can do. He even raises somebody from the dead, like Lazarus. And then he dies on the cross in our place for our sin and does something that only God can do. He rises from the dead. Now, it's incredibly arrogant to have somebody come along hundreds, thousands of years later and say, well, Jesus really didn't get the words right. He didn't know what he was talking about. We have to change that and update that. Did you, like, heal anybody who was sick? You ever raise anybody from the dead? You rise from the dead yourself? I don't think so. How dare you have the audacity and the arrogance to sit there and think Jesus Christ didn't know what he was talking about when he said certain things, when he claimed to be God. You haven't done anything to back those claims up. Jesus did everything to back those claims up. And not just the words of Jesus, but the words of the New Testament and the apostles. They didn't make things up. They reported what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Not only did they report, but the Scriptures tell us, that Jesus promised that when he sent the holy spirit the holy spirit would bring to mind the things that he said and he did so they would record or they would record what Jesus said and did accurately this is called the inspiration of scripture like for instance i didn't put this in your outlines but i'll look at it anyway john chapter 16 verse 13 Jesus is talking to his apostles and he says when the spirit of truth comes the Spirit, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. And the Scriptures go on to talk about how the Holy Spirit would bring to mind the Apostles exactly what Jesus wanted said and Jesus wanted written. How dare some of the false teachers in Ephesus come along decades later and say, well, we have to really correct the apostles. We have to correct Jesus. They didn't quite get it right. Arrogance. People like that don't just exist in the first century, but they exist in our century. And some of you are saying, really? Where? Where do I find these kind of people? Let me just tell you something. If you go to the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America website, this is a poll off their website. And I, might, I tried to check to find it again last night. They updated their website. It looks prettier now. I couldn't find these words, but I still have my screenshot. So this is what they wrote, wrote down. We believe that after listening to the living Jesus in the context of the church, we therefore have the task of deciding among these. Having done this listening, now notice this, we sometimes conclude this is talking about this. Either the biblical, that the, that the writer's culture or personal experience seems to have prompted that the biblical writers were missing what God was saying or doing, or that God is now saying or doing something new. They say, we believe that the biblical writers missed what God was saying or doing, so we get to change it. Arrogance. Complete arrogance. You weren't there. You're thousands of years removed. What would give you the right to do that? Do you see what behind all this, people who want to twist the truth about Jesus, is arrogance and pride? Now, by the way, this is not just true of uh, the, the ELCA, but you can find this in a lot of the cults as well. For instance, I've spent a fair amount of time interacting with Jehovah's Witnesses. And they come along, and they look at the Bible, and in the Bible you find it says, the Father is God, and Jesus clearly claims to be God, and the Holy Spirit is also called God. And they come along, and they say, well, gee, that doesn't seem to make sense. Father is God, Jesus is God, Holy Spirit is God, but yet there's only one God, it says in Scripture. So we need to change that. This is what they do. They have a new specific Bible called the New World Translation, which is the only one you can use if you're a Jehovah's Witness. And they train you to say that Jesus is not God, but he was the first created being. And the Holy Spirit is not God, but he's an impersonal electric energy force, sort of like Star Wars. May the force be with you. (laughs) Arrogance. What gives you the right Coming almost 2,000 years after Jesus, you were never there. You didn't hear the words of Jesus. You don't have the Holy Spirit inspiring you to come along and make you want to change those things. You submit to the Scriptures, and you study the Scriptures. Even if you don't understand them, you follow them. You don't change them. And it's arrogance that causes people to do this. In fact, Paul also says this. Not only are they puffed up with conceit and arrogance, but they actually understand nothing. If you listen to these people, they think they're really smart, don't they? But Paul actually says they're really stupid. That's what he says. They understand nothing. You know, they're highly educated. They probably have more degrees than Fahrenheit. But, okay, you caught that. Okay, good, good. But they have no authority to make these claims, or to do any of this kind of stuff. Uh, let me give you some examples here. Well, let me jump into this. Um, one of the key proofs of their foolishness is the result of their life. We saw at the very beginning that it's the spiritual truth, it's, a, it's the healthy spiritual truth about Jesus Christ, leads to godliness in our lives. You. Follow your finger in the text, you end up maturing in Christ, you become more godly how you live. But what happens with these guys? What is the result of their teachings of twisting and distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ? This is what he says. They end up with sick cravings for controversy. All they want to do is fight, fight about words. They end up leading the church into a place of envy, A church of dissension, which means a bunch of divisions. A church filled with slander, where people are talking evil behind one another's back. A church filled with evil suspicions, where you don't assume the best about people, you always end up assuming the worst about people. A church filled with constant friction. No unity, no trust, no peace. That is the result of beginning to twist and stort and change the honest truth of the words about Jesus. They do it because of their pride and arrogance, thinking they're smarter than the apostles who actually were there, and Jesus, who's actually the one. And they also do it because they're actually really stupid, not really smart, which is what they think they are. They have sick minds, deprived of the truth. So one of my challenges is for you and each one of us, keep your finger in the text. Keep your finger in the text every day. and then I Come to worship and hear the Word of God preached. Whoever is the preacher up here does that. Keep their finger in the text. Now here's the million-dollar question. Besides arrogance, besides ignorance, what possibly could motivate these guys to want to twist and distort the very words of Christ? Why does Joseph Smith write the Book of Mormon? And why does he pull people away from the gospel truth of Jesus? What motivates it? And this is what he says They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. They do it for money. Just like uh, the government, when they want to find out what's going on with the terrorists, what do they do? Follow the money. Why are there terrorists out there? Honestly, do you really think it's all because of some great religious ideal? No. They just want money. They just want power. It's all about money. And that's the same thing. These guys reject Jesus, and they teach something new because they want money. Real practical. Now, you say, how does that actually prove true? Let me explain it to you in the ancient world, and then I'll run this parallel in the modern world. In the ancient culture at this time, uh, they didn't have television. I know that's hard for you to believe, life without television, and life without cable, but they didn't. So at night, and they wanted to do something, they didn't have a place to go. What they would do is they would come and hear speakers who would speak on a subject. Uh, some of those speakers were called sophists. It comes from the Greek word sophistry, which is, means wisdom. And a sophist would be paid very good money, to come and speak on a topic. He would use very big words. He would use very flowery language and eloquent reasoning. And people would say, man, that guy is amazing. That guy is, you have to come hear him. And so with all this eloquent rhetoric, he would gain his income. And the more uh, exciting you were and novel you were, the more money you made. Now, in the church at this time, this idea of sophistry and of so wise men has come into the church of Ephesus. People come and they, and they want to hear good and eloquent teaching, but that doesn't seem to hang on for a while. It's sort of like television. Do you guys notice that your favorite programs last about how many seasons? Like three, maybe four seasons, and then what do they do? They kill it because they know that people always want something new. So they kill what is old, even if it's pretty good. The same thing is going on with the sophistry in this culture. We've been teaching the Jesus and the Apostles program for about three seasons now. And they've discovered that, you know, it's not playing as well as it used to. Revenue and income is going down a little bit. People have, I've I've heard all about the Jesus story before. So, you know, I'm not necessarily going to come to that. And so let's invent something new. Let's twist it and change it a little bit. Let's say things that people want to hear. And more people will come to hear. And their income goes back up. But you see how their greed and desire for money is producing heresy. Is there changing and twisting and beginning to distort the gospel to be what people actually want to hear? Same thing. If you go in modern day stuff, let's go back to the Mormons. Uh, Joseph Smith and the Mormons. You know how wealthy he ended up? It was very interesting. I was reading some stuff on Wikipedia about him. You know, he, he would say to one guy, you know, um... God has told me that you were going to build me a new house. And I'm like, okay, well, I have to do that. God has told me that you were going to give me this money. Money, pride, possessions. I'm I just going to do this off the top of my head for some previous research, but I believe that the Mormon church is one of the wealthiest institutions west of the Mississippi. What's it all about? Money. Money and greed is what drives heresy. Charles Russell, Jehovah's Witnesses, did he end up a very wealthy man? Same thing. Money and greed drives heresy. You turn on the television, you got, what's this guy's name, Sereflo Dollar? You have Joel Osteen? I'm going to say what people want to hear so more people come and I get more rich as opposed to saying, let me be faithful to what Jesus said, even if it's hard. Let me be faithful to what the apostles wrote, even if it's difficult to understand. So this is what goes on. Now, we've seen that greed and covetousness is what drives heresy. But that's what segues us into money and contentment. Because Paul's going to say, you know, real riches aren't in money. Real riches aren't in the size of our bank account. But real riches is found in Jesus Christ and contentment in the place that God has put us. Let's look at this. What are true riches? But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. He says true riches, true gain in this world is godliness, which means you know Jesus Christ, the true doctrine of Jesus Christ, and he's produced changes in your life. And then becoming content with the place and the situation in life that he has placed you today. Why do we need to be content? says, think of it this way. Did you ever notice you didn't come into this world wearing something with pockets? And when you go out of this world, you're not wearing something with pockets. You can't take it with you. A hearse is never pulling a U-Haul. The only thing that comes with you is the one thing that truly matters which is your relationship with Jesus Christ, which matters for everything in eternity. If you have Jesus Christ in this life and for the next life, you are truly rich. That and learning to be content where God has placed you today. Now I'm going to look at this idea of contentment and riches in a few, or a few other scripture verses. Here's the one. True wealth is having Christ, not having money. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Don't love money, He says. Be content in the situation that God has you right now. If you have Jesus... It is the one thing of true value. It is the one thing that truly matters. It's the one thing that lasts beyond this life into the next life. Now, I want you to notice what he says here. He doesn't say, keep your lives free from money, does he? Keep your lives free from the love of money. There's nothing wrong with money. What's wrong is when you can't be content with what you have and you constantly live with a burning desire, which I have to have more, I have to have bigger, I have to have better, as if all that matters is more, bigger, and better, when really the one thing of true value is Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 12, verse 15 says this, And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's not about stuff, guys. Now, another thing to look at is this. Wealth is actually a gift from God that can either lead us to worship or to wonder. This is a very important point. This is a longer passage, but I think it's worth reading all of it. This is Moses writing to the Israelites right before they go into the promised land. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and the thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you and to do good, to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, it's my power and the might of my hand that have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. What Moses says to the Israelites, when you go into the promised land, and God begins to bless you, and you are successful, and you gain wealth and riches and houses, don't let those things lead you away from God, because what they should do is you should look back on where you came from. Remember the difficulties that God carried you through miraculously when you had nothing. One by one, He carried you through. And you should look back at that and look where you are today, and you should end up worshiping Him. Is that you today? You look in your marriage and your life, and you remember when you first got married and you had nothing. You had hardly any income. You're living on a prayer. But God's been faithful. God has blessed many of us uh, in ways that are beyond what we deserve. Does that wealth that you have gained cause you to want to wander from Christ and say, look what I did? Or does it cause you to worship Christ and say, God, you have been so incredibly good, so incredibly kind, and so incredibly faithful. I just worship you more for all the goodness that you have given to me, and I don't deserve any of it. Don't let it lead you to wonder. Let it lead you to worship. Number three, a simple life is not necessarily more pleasing to God than a wealthy life. It says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. God Does make some people rich. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that having wealth is sinful. In fact, in the Old Testament, you can find some of the great patriarchs are incredibly wealthy Abraham, Job, David, Solomon, incredibly wealthy. The issue is not do I have wealth, but does wealth have me? Do you see the difference? It's not, do I have wealth, but does wealth have we? Let me be honest. I can tell you as a pastor, some of the most godly men I know are very well off financially. They're incredibly sacrificial. They're incredibly generous. And they love Jesus passionately. Wealth hasn't derailed them. But I also know some people, you don't have that much wealth. And their life, their life is characterized by being miserly and hoarding. Because while they may not have money, it's very clear that they love money. They don't have wealth, but wealth has them. The goal of the Christian life is not poverty, my friends. It's to love God and honor Jesus and to use your wealth for God's glory and to be content where He has placed you. If that isn't a simple life right now and you have Jesus, you're rich, be content there. If it's in a wealthy position and you have Jesus, you're rich, be content there and use those resources for God's honor and God's glory. Number four, seek to please God and know that He will take care of the needs in your life. He promises that. Much more clothe you, oh you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we wear? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these all these things. And your Heavenly Father, He knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God knows what you need. He knows what you need to survive. He desperately loves you. You seek Him first above all else. And He promises to take care of your needs. He may not give us everything we want, but He promises He'll give us everything we need to honor Him that day. And quite honestly, doesn't He give us oftentimes a lot more than we need? he blesses us in ways we never expected because he is good he is kind and he is incredibly generous to us but the promise still stands seek him first and he promises he'll take care of your needs well what are the results results of loving money but those who desire to be rich these are people who are going to worship the almighty dollar they fall into temptation into a snare, and into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it's through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. This burning desire that I have to have what is bigger, what is shinier, what is newer, it's what leads to ruin. It's what leads to destruction. And he says here that it plunges some people into ruin and destruction. You know what the picture of plunges. You guys ever go out on, like in the ocean, and you, you're out deep in the ocean, and you take something and you throw it overboard, and for a moment or two you see it, and then you see it it's escape into the dark abyss. And it's going to be going for about two miles below the surface. And I'll trust, trust me, nobody is ever seeing that again. It's gone. It's this burning desire that I need to have more money, more things, better stuff that can take people and plunge them into complete ruin and complete destruction, like throwing their entire life overboard in the ship, 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 give you an example. Joshua chapter 7 talks about the story of Achan. Maybe you remember that. Um, Joshua in the battle of Jericho, they were told to destroy everything. But Achan comes along and Achan sees some silver and gold and a robe. No one's going to notice. He keeps it to himself and he hides it under the tent. There'll be no effects to this. But when they go to the battle of Ai, 36 men die because God has withdrawn his hand of blessing upon them. And it's discovered that it was greed, love of money, that Achan had taken these things and hidden them. And as a result, not just 36 men died, but Achan and his entire family died, plunged to ruin and destruction by greed. It's a deadly sin. Jesus, betrayed by a man named Judas. Judas had been with Jesus for three years seen the miracles, been right on the spot with him. Looked amazing. They let him even handle the money. But it was greed. For 30 pieces of silver, I will betray my Lord and Savior. Because I have to have cash. I have to have more. You see how greed can so quickly plunge you to ruin and destruction? Well, it's love of money that is behind all heresy and all false teaching, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the ELCA's uh, deviation away from scriptural truth. God says, if you have Jesus, you're truly rich. Be content with what he provides. If it's a simple life, that's okay. You're still rich. If he gives you much more than a simple life, that's okay too. Your wealth is in Jesus." that's what truly matters. And use those resources to be able to be generous and do good for God's kingdom. If you're struggling for those resources, remember what he said in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Seek Christ. He will take care of your needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word on wealth. We all want to confess that we, to some degree, we all love money. And it takes money to live in life. Uh, Help us to work hard, to let our work be a witness for you, but also help us to be content where you have us. Realizing that true wealth is found in having Jesus And that as we seek you, you do promise to provide for all of our needs. And we also thank you, Jesus, that many times you do so much more than provide for our needs, but you bless us with the things we want. I pray that our wealth would never cause us to wonder from you, but it would instead drive greater worship of you, because you, Jesus Christ, are the giver of so many good gifts. And all God's people said, Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.